Welcome to the Paperback Show, a podcast devoted to paperbacks. I'm Ricky Grove, and today we'll be talking about James Malahan Kane, a marvelous uh, suspense and mystery writer who has had a long career connected to movies and novel writings. In the first part, we'll be talking about his biography, a little bit of his background, and in the second part, we'll be talking with Richard Brewer who's uh, spoke with us earlier about Chandler and Hammett, and uh, we're filling out the big three here this time. So let's get started. Near the end of James Malahan Kane's long and eventful life, 1892 to 1977, he wrote that writing was distinctly a consolation prize, for his real passion was for opera singing. He tried it as a young man, moving to Washington, D.C. and taking voice lessons, but his mother, a successful opera singer who had retired, told him bluntly that he had no voice. It's strange that Kane held on to this love of opera and music in general, as he wrote two and possibly three of the most iconic crime novels in the 20th century, The Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity. And I would add Mildred Pierce to that list as well. He wrote novels, journalism, screenplays, short stories, nonfiction, and essays for the rest of his life. If writing was a consolation prize, it certainly was a good one, as James M. Cain is part of our culture now. Cain didn't set out to write. He was a child prodigy at school, advanced several grades because of his prodigious memory and intelligence, He was raised by upper-class, wealthy Irish-American parents who instilled in him a lifelong love of language and reading, but they were often distant. He once said his relationship with his parents was one of the blights of his life. Perhaps that explains his continual exploration of the power struggles between men and women in his novels and stories. After graduating from Washington College in Maryland in 1920, His father was the university's president. He moved to Baltimore. Roy Hoops, his biographer, indicated that the four years he spent doing different jobs, insurance, construction work, ledger clerk, etc., laid the foundations for several of his later novels. It seemed that Kane had the ability to pay attention to people and places where he worked and lived. He also developed a great ear for speech, and the individual voices of people he met and talked to. James M. Kane returned to Chesterton in 1914, where he worked as a teacher. He received a master's degree in drama from Washington University, but by 1917 he was still unpublished and living with his parents. He took a job with the Baltimore Reporter newspaper as a cub reporter on the police beat, But in 1918, he was inducted into the army, where he fought in France. He survived a gas attack and eventually began writing for the 147th Battalion's Lorraine Cross newsletter. He was mustered out of the army in 1919 and worked for the Baltimore Sun as a reporter. 
It was at this time he discovered the writings of H.L. Mencken, who would be a lasting influence on his writing. He eventually started selling articles to Mencken's American Mystery Magazine. Some of the articles were in the form of dialogues, which were so good they caught the public eye. Kane worked as a human interest writer for the New York World, where his writings continued to attract attention. After the New York World closed, he was hired by the volatile Harold Ross at the New Yorker magazine, this time as managing editor. He lasted for nine months and pleaded with his agent to get him a job in Hollywood. His job as a screenwriter for Paramount Pictures in 1931 would be the beginning of a completely new phase of Kane's life. While never an accomplished screenwriter, he loved the life and the money that working in Hollywood gave him. Married now with two adopted children, Kane met and befriended many writers who would help him learn the business and encourage him to write fiction. He had tried writing a novel even before moving to Hollywood, but hated the result and threw it in the trash. He did write an amazing story, The Baby in the Icebox, for Mencken's American Mercury in 1932. A film, She Made Her Bed, was adapted from the story in 1932, although Kane didn't do the adaptation. Fired from a Columbia Pictures job for not producing a suitable script, Kane spent most of 1933 writing The Postman Always Rings Twice. With help from Walter Lippmann, Knopf published the novel to immediate and universal acclaim. This lean story of adultery which leads to murder has never been out of print. Kane became quite famous, and this success led to more interesting writing projects for the future. Double Indemnity, written as a serial for Liberty magazine in 1936, and then adapted into a classic film noir by Billy Wilder in 1944. His works were slow to be produced by Hollywood studios because of their adult nature. The Hayes Commission, in charge of censoring Hollywood films, were very resistant initially to film versions of Kane's novels. It was only until after World War II that the censorship board began loosening their restrictions. Serenade, 1937 was Kane's third novel and dealt with homosexuality in the opera world. It was quite shocking at the time and cemented his reputation as a controversial writer. Raymond Chandler, who adapted Double Indemnity for Billy Wilder, said that Kane was like a dirty little boy with a piece of chalk and a board and nobody looking. He's the kind of writer I detest. Not only is this simply mean-spirited, I mean, was Chandler jealous of Kane, but it's just plain wrong. One questions Chandler's obvious intelligence, but he didn't let his opinion get in the way of adapting Double Indemnity, as it's a brilliant screenplay. Kane wasn't very good for Hollywood, but Hollywood was very good for James M. Kane. By 1948, he was making $80,000 a year, living in an expensive Hollywood Hills house and entertaining friends and VIPs with musical Fridays and lavish dinners. He was also an extremely popular writer with the general reading public. 
Three of his novels had been published as armed service editions, and he received letters from many soldiers commenting on how much they enjoyed them. This was extremely satisfying to Mr. Kane, and he loved the idea of the common man reading his books and enjoying them. The beginning of the 1950s saw Kane in a slow decline. He published only three novels in that decade, all of them received with less enthusiasm than his early popular successes. That decade saw many political changes and shocks in America. Although he was spared the commie accusations, he got involved with the writers' union politics. But despite good intentions, he was battered and vilified by many. His screenwriting career continued to be piecemeal. I was a bit of a bust as a picture writer, he said. He was working on a big historical Civil War novel and spent time in Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress doing research. With bad reviews coming out for his novel, The Moth, and fewer offers for screenwriting jobs, he and his wife, he had again remarried, rented a small house in Hyattsville, Maryland, with easy access to Washington, D.C. and the Library of Congress, and eventually moved there permanently. James M. Kane lived in this small Maryland town for the next 29 years. During those years, he continued to write. After failing as a playwright, he stuck to novel writing. His novel, The Magician's Wife, was published in 1965 to tepid reviews. And in 1968, he suffered a near-fatal heart attack. This was two years after his wife Florence, ironically a retired opera singer, had died. A brief resurgence of popularity and luck came with the sale of his novel Past All Dishonor to CBS Films and Knopf's publication of Kane Times Three, which collects Postman, Double Indemnity, and Mildred Pierce together. Knopf picked Tom Wolfe to do the introduction, and it was a masterpiece. Tom wrote, Picking up a Kane novel was like climbing into a car, which is up to 40 miles per hour by the time your right leg is in the door. The collection was extremely successful and made Kane a celebrity again. Letters poured in from all over the U.S. and comforted the aging Kane. Ironically, this led him into journalism again when he wrote a series of humorous articles for the Washington Post in 1974. A final novel, The Institute, came out in 1976, but it was not published by Knopf, who turned it down. A small publishing house, Manson Lipscomb, took it on despite Kane's continual rewriting of the novel. The book received enthusiastic reviews, and he was offered speaking engagements, which he mostly turned down due to age. James M. Kane was very popular in his Hyattsville neighborhood. He knew all of the families who lived nearby and the names of all of their children. And now that he was old and alone, neighborhood wives and friends came to help him out with housekeeping. Writing sustained him. It kept him interested in life. His old age and bad heart made him aware of his own mortality. Near the end of his life, he told anyone who had an appointment with him, I'll be there if you don't see any crepe on my door. He died in 1977 in the kitchen of his home 
at the age of 85 of a heart attack. His last act was washing his dinner dishes. Paperback publishing history of James M. Kane starts with the two armed service editions published in the mid-40s, Postman and Double Indemnity, which was reprinted later in the year. Penguin also published in 1946 Mildred Pierce with a cover by Jonas, a very famous illustrator, and in 1947 Postman Always Rings Twice. Avon published many of James N. Kane's novels. Their early publications were in the digest size Avon Murder Monthly in the early 1940s. But in 1945 and 46, they started publishing him regularly. Double Indemnity, The Embezzler, Jealous Woman, Love's Lonely Counterfeit in the 50s, Sinful Woman. Pocket Books published uh, James M. Kane early in 1950 with Double Indemnity and Mildred Pierce, but it was really Signet New American Library in the late 40s through the 50s that uh, brought uh, the paperback attention to James M. Cain's works. Past All Dishonor, and in 1949, The Butterfly, 1950, The Moth, and um, very impressively, 1954, Serenade, with a James Avati cover. That's absolutely one of my favorite James M. Kane paperbacks. And then The Butterfly, 1955, Double Indemnity, 1957, and in 1961, Mildred Pierce and Serenade. All of these paperbacks are collectible and very interesting to the paperback reader of James M. Kane. You can find more detailed notes at our paperbackshow.com website, See the link in this article. Stay tuned with a discussion with Richard Brewer on Double Indemnity. This is The Paperback Show. And welcome to the second half of our paperback show. I'm Ricky Grove. We'll be talking about the author James N. Kane. In this section, uh, we'll have our favorite guest, Richard Brewer. Hello there. As you recall, Hello. we talked with Richard about Raymond Chandler in episode three and Dashiell Hammett in episode seven. Welcome again, Richard. I'm so happy to have you here with us. Thank you so much, Ricky. It's a pleasure to be back. I've just um, been looking forward to this all week. Me too. Richard Brewer is a writer and reviewer. He also produces, acts in, and directs audiobook recordings. In fact, he recently completed producing a complete collection of Raymond Chandler's novels and many stories. We'll be sure to have the links to these in our show notes. Is there anything you want to add to that, Richard? Uh, just recently, um, as a narrator, I've uh, narrated a really great uh, neo-noir um, mystery by an author named Bart Paul, who writes the Tommy Smith series nice. uh they're they're western modern western noir that take place in northern california and i highly recommend them oh, cool. not just not just because i narrate them but <laughs> um but they're actually they're they're really well written fun uh 
uh, mysteries with with a uh, uh, a Western uh, twinge to them. You know, nice. lots of people, lots of people looking very very steely eyed at each other and saying, "So this is what you're after," you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> nice. When do you think that'll be coming out? Uh, hopefully this month. I'm, it's it's uh, it's uh, been approved and it's been um, edited and uh, hopefully it'll be out in October. And uh, we just finished wrapping the um, audiobook version of the anthology I put together, Culprits, yeah. which has got about seven different authors reading different stories on that. And I'm looking forward to that. That'll probably be out in November. Okay. We'll make sure we'll have links to these. Even if they're not out, we'll have it so you can take a look at it. So we're going to be talking about James M. Cain classic novel, Double Indemnity, primarily covering the book, but we'll also talk about the famous Billy Wilder, Raymond Chandler film released in 1943 as well. Um, let me do a quick publishing history of Double Indemnity. This uh, short novel it was very short. Was a, In fact, it, uh, you might even call it a novella. It's between a novella and a novel. It was originally written quickly for a magazine publication for some quick cash um, while he was working hard on a play that eventually bombed. The original magazine publication was in eight parts and it first appeared in Liberty magazine in 1936. But because it was so short, it wasn't published in hardback until 1943, along with two other works, Career in C Major and The Embezzler by Knopf, his publisher. The collection was called Three of a Kind. Yeah, the magazine publication uh, increased the small magazine Liberty by almost 800,000 subscribers. The uh, piece was so popular. Hollywood was very interested and they wanted to buy it. But at that time, there was a, a organization called the Hayes Committee, which was the moral police of Hollywood. And um, they were waiting for the report that came back from them on the story. And it opened with the line, under no circumstances, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. So all of the studios backed off. And that's the reason why you don't see a film version of it until 1943. <clears throat> that's like, what, um, seven, eight years later? Yeah, yeah. When, when that, more, that's brilliant. That's yeah. Brilliant. When under morals, no circumstances. When morals Sorry. had changed a bit, uh, because there was a big difference between the book and the movie, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, let me do a very short uh, synopsis for those people who don't know anything about a Double Indemnity. It was hard picking uh, the novel to go with because he has so many really good ones. But let me do a, a, a short synopsis of Double Indemnity. Walter Neff is a successful insurance salesman with a big company in Los Angeles in the 40s. He meets and falls in lust with Phyllis Nerdlinger, the wife of a rich oil man who is neglecting her. He's been working on the perfect crime to defraud his company in their double indemnity clause. Uh, the two of them concoct a scheme to murder her husband on a train and make it look like suicide. They're successful, but they have to stop seeing each other because it might look suspicious. The claims manager at the insurance company, Barton Keyes, has a hunch that it was murder, although the, all the evidence points to suicide. His suspicions drive the couple crazy, and they worry one will rat out on the other. Eventually, they both try to kill each other unsuccessfully. They escape Los Angeles and Barton Keyes, and, well, the rest is for you to find out at the end of the book. <laughs> 
Yeah. Was there anything, I mean, I left out swaths of the book, but was there anything important that you think we should include in that synopsis that I missed? No, I think you covered it. You covered it very well. I, um, the, uh, the growing, uh, I mean, this is part the, the, the evolution through the book, um, the growing, um, paranoia and of, of Huff as he starts to realize how, this is all how how vulnerable he is is so prevalent throughout the novel that you're as you read it you're on edge you're uh, absolutely right they spend a lot more time in the book about their gravel uh, the gradual unraveling of their relationship um which i i personally found more interesting kane said that the book was more of a love story than a murder story but I'm not so sure about that. I think I would disagree with that. I yeah. think um, there's, um, I mean, there's a great point in in the book where he says, "Oh, what is it that he says?" Um, it's after they've they've done the deed, um, and he he says something to the effect of, "Of you know, I've I've killed a man. I've killed a man for money. I've killed a man for this woman, and I never want to see her again." <laughs> yes and and that's early that's early in the in in the in the book i mean this thing moves like a house fire yeah yeah the it's there's there's no there's no uh fat in this story i mean you 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 get to the um you know, when you first meet huff and he first meets phyllis it's it's just you know what is that the second chapter the yes. first where, where he just where he's just like i'm in you know, I, I, I've fallen for her head over heels and then you're, you're just cooking. Then well, in the book, there's a fundamental difference with uh, Walter Huff slash Neff's character, because in the book, he's been ruminating on this possibility of defrauding the company for right. a while. And so he's just looking for the right situation to come up so he can work his plan out. And when he meets Phyllis, Phyllis, it clicks. In the movie, they Phyllis is the one he immediately suspects that she wants to defraud her husband because she wants to take out a life insurance policy without telling him about it. And he upbraids her. He says, no, nah, I'm out of here. But she convinces him using sex and um, the sort of femme fatale wiles that she has. But right. the, but that was very, very different. Um, the, the, the book was much clearer that Walter was ready to go and he just found the right person to work with. Well, but it's interesting because in the book, um, and you're right, there's that whole section where he ruminates about how he's been thinking, you know, I could, you know, I, I'm smarter than these guys who have tried to defraud the company before, you know, I know how to do this. But there is a point where he says, I knew exactly what she was talking about. I knew what she meant. And I knew I should have got out of there. I should have dropped her like a hot potato, but I didn't go. Mm. And that is about as classic a noir situation as you can lay out. Yeah. A, a pretty decent guy, you know, even though we all have these thoughts in our head about, you know, well, what if I did this or what if I did that? He has that decision. He could say no. He could leave, come back, you know, later and, and find doesn't. the husband up. But he doesn't. He chooses not to and everything everything falls after that yeah 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 it's essentially the same story as the postman always wings tries but it's set in the middle and upper classes 
well, here's my friend. I'm going to have to make a very embarrassing admission to you. Oh, my goodness. I've seen the movies. I had never read Kane until I read this book. Wow. Interesting. Now, tell me, why is that? I don't know, because um, I've read all of Chandler. I've read most of Hammett. I've read a ton of Black Mask short stories over the years. And for some reason, and maybe it's because I saw the movies and I thought, well, I've seen the movies. You know, I've seen those movies. Ah. Uh, why should I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to. And and there's just so much, you know, I've read, you know, Ross McDonald. I've read. Uh, Robert Parker. Uh, Robert Parker. I, I just, you know, just constantly I've read all of these stuff. And Kane, perhaps it's because um, when I was when I think of Kane, I really only think of the two books. Yes. I really only think of those. And I th- and Postman always drinks twice and double indemnity. And double indemnity. Um, and I've just, I think I was always like, oh yeah, I should get to those. But I, but I, I know them. You know, I, I've seen those movies. I, I, I know them. Um, so when I picked this up, I was coming to it with very fresh eyes and was so... taken with the smoothness of the style the tightness of Uh the story the clarity of the writing the clarity of the writing i just so now i have to go back and pick up the other yeah well i hardly recommend postman always wings twice that's just a terrific book and um also the butterfly it's a later in the series but it is a great great novel yeah. with a strong crime element and an incest element that was very adroitly handled. It's a, it's a really good book. I, something that just occurred to me um, is it's also, I tend to be attracted to series. Mm. And it's possible that, you know, since I saw these, I knew these were standalones. Maybe that, you know, you know, whereas as opposed to following right. Marlowe or... Right you know reading the Maltese Falcon and the and the Spade short stories and you know I wasn't going to be following a character through a series of books but yeah I so how does it how does it compare to the other books we've discussed Big Sleep and Glass Key do you think they've overshadowed Kane's those two writers have overshadowed the Kane's career in in this book I think so in this one way I think when you read Philip Marlowe, which is certainly noir and certainly, you know, uh, covers a lot of the human condition. Marlowe and Spade and let's say Spencer and McGee, they're observers. You know, they they get involved in this stuff, but they're they're observing it and commenting upon it. With double indemnity, you're in the heart. Mm. You're you are it's visceral you what you're going through is what your character is going through you know it's not you know they must have told you know they must have figured out that they were going to kill so and so in such and such a way this is we're going to kill so and so we're going to kill the husband this is how we're going to do it and then the repercussions are felt by that character that you're that you're following that you're reading with and that first person narrative of that is not something you get in those other in those other stories. So I think there's a more visceral um, 
reading experience. A raw, raw, more raw experience, you think? Very much more of a raw experience. The actual um, murder, which in the book and the movie is really just a very short section. But man, you know, when he in the book, what is it he says? He says, um, I'm not going to tell you what I did to him. And your imagination, I mean, even though yeah, he of course. Up, you just, ugh, yeah. you know, and again, like with if Marlowe and Spade, they find them, they find the bodies. And it's already, you know, that deed is already done. Yeah. And you're right there with Huff when it when it happens. It's and interesting I, you mentioned the first person uh, thing, because that was something that he struggled a bit with in his life. And I've been thinking about that, meaning that he he had a hard time writing as himself. You know what I mean? Um, he could do it in journalism. Um, but then again, that was a very different kind of thing. But in fiction, he needed the the persona of somebody else um, to, to be able to be successful. The uh, the let me see if I can find that. I think I did read somewhere that most of his books are first person. Am I, am I correct yeah. in that? Well, he talked about this a lot as a problem in his <laughs> writing um, where he just simply couldn't, his first dramatic pieces were all first person narratives for journalism in American Mercury. And they became very, ex uh, uh, people were very excited by those and they were published um, in a collection, which really got that that's, really got people interested in his stuff and he discovered that his imagination was released when he wrote in first person and all all of his successful works all the way through the end of his life were first person narratives part part of the problem of his trying to be a playwright is that he couldn't write he couldn't create something in the third person he had a hard time being able to do that so i think that was his just natural feel because he wrote opinion pieces as a journalist, which are first person. Right. And I think that's, he always considered himself a journalist or maybe a playwright who wrote plays in a novel form. You know what I mean? With dialogue. Uh, but he struggled with that. Uh, it's interesting to note that he was working on a, an adaptation of Postman for the stage uh, at the time he was writing um, Double Indemnity also researching his next novel serenade both of which preoccupied him so he wrote this in a in a quite of a heat which um left and was dis disappointed with the ending which will uh, will give a warning when we talk about that so people don't get confused but um i think you're right i think that's one of the great appeals of him uh is his first person narrative you you're in the shoes of the character right Right. You feel his dilemmas. You feel his con his conflict of of uh, interest, the whole aspect of um, what do I do now that I've that I've done this? How have I covered my tracks? I mean, you're you're following along with him every step of the way. And so you feel his um, his fear of discovery, his uh, when he's having conversations with his boss, Keys, and Keys is throwing out you know, well, I think the death is suicide. I think it, you know, I, and then especially when he throws out, I think it was murder. And you feel that scrambling that 
yeah. stuff does about, well, no, it's, you know, it couldn't be that because of this. And, oh, no, it couldn't be that because of this. And he's got to come up with these um, reasons why Key's um, uh, suspicions are wrong because he's covering his own base. And yes. So what we can't talk about the end spoilers. Um, so when you get that part at the end. Yes. And they handle it so beautifully in the book, uh, but even better in the movie. Yes, I think so too. They solved the problem of the ending, which was a little odd, I think, um, in the book. But he, but Kane was uh, disappointed with it too, and kind of wanted to rewrite it, um, but didn't have the time because he was involved in other projects. Uh, he was an inveterate tinkerer especially towards the end of his life he actually rewrote he, he, sadly towards the end of his life he he kept writing novels he never stopped writing but he couldn't get them published because Knopf didn't like them and there was new hmm. management and although they were devoted to him they just couldn't get them they didn't think they were publishable so he'd rewrite the entire novel oh, and then he'd goodness. rewrite it again he'd rewrite it four or five times oh. to try to adjust it to fit what he thought they wanted uh, but that's a whole other story let's stick with the uh, double indemnity again what did you how do you compare these with big sleep and glass key well i uh, i think i would have to come it's interesting because if you think with with the big sleep it still deals with the with an upper class ish um family mm -hmm. that a regular Joe in, in, in the case of the big sleep, it's Philip Marlowe um, is sort of exposed to there's a, um, uh, there's a revelation as a reader to this other side of life, not certainly not as opulent as uh, the characters in the big sleep, but you know, you've got the, the, the daughter who is, um, you know, being, I'm trying to think of what I want to say. There's just a, a, a level up. Like if you're in the thirties and you're reading about these people who have this beautiful Spanish house and, you know, have, you know, cars and at their beck and call and servants, it, it's an, it's an insight into that, into that lifestyle that right. you could, you know, the average Joe could only be thinking about. Right. You know, and then you've got Huff who lives in an apartment, although he has a houseboy. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. You know, it's, yeah. it's like somebody who comes in and cooks for him and does his stuff for him. And, and you're like, wow, you make that kind of money selling insurance? Yeah. Well, he was a top insurance salesman there, so he did. And it was a right. big company. Right. I um, think the big difference between them is that the big sleep is a mystery. And Glass Key is primarily a mystery, whereas mm. I think Double Indemnity is a crime story. Totally see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, comparison, uh, you know, contrast there. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, and I think there are elements of the mystery that Hammett and Chandler follow that Kane didn't feel he needed to. Because well, there was no the, mystery involved in it. I was going to say part of that is is the fact that there is no mystery. We we right. know almost right off the bat who's done what to who, and and then it just becomes a how do we um, 
how do, how does how is this going to unfold now? Yeah. Well, so. Kane was was an expert, and and all of his books have this element in, and I'm not sure why, but the idea of love turning into hate, or lust turning into hate, uh, the same thing happens in Postman. Similar things happens in Serenade. Butterfly it happens in. He's just amazing at being able to create these power struggles between men and women who are desperately attracted to each other. Certainly in this, I think it's interesting that um, with with uh, Huff's attraction to Phyllis, it's lust. I mean, I don't think there's any, uh, you know, they say love and stuff like that, but it's lust. It's, it's just, lust. It's just pure sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet he starts to fall in love with the daughter. Yes. Which was you know. a very interesting in, thing in the book. It was somewhat covered in the movie, but not as effectively in the book. No, I mean, not as I, effectively as it was in the book. Yeah, I think in the in the in in the book you actually get this real sense of um, of affection and growing, and I'll say this of 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 a love. Even though he admits she's nineteen, he's thirty something. Yeah. Um, he admits the age difference and all that stuff. But um, if you go, when you get towards the end of the book and there is this um, suspicion on the, on, the, on the daughter. Right. He's all worried about her. Mm -hmm. Don't let anything happen to her. Let her be okay. Let, you know, don't let the cops, you know, hurt her. You know, and even at the towards the very end, it's he's asking, "Is she all right? Yeah. Is she going to be okay?" Yeah. And that shows the core decency of of Huff. Would you think, um, even though he's been thinking about how I could get around this and how I could possibly, you know, bilk the company, you know, do you feel he feels real remorse over what he's done? Well, certainly not in the film, but in the book, I think he does yeah, uh, a bit I, because because in some ways, Cain uh, implied that he was trying to put one over on. Um, uh, just a second. I always forget his name. I don't know why. Norton. Uh, no, Barton. Barton Keys. He was trying to put one oh. over on the insurance manager because uh, Barton was always bragging about how good he was at being able to solve this. Right. So in a way, he was a kind of father figure. And Hoff was trying to get one over on him, I think. Oh, that's interesting. I I, I, I have to say, I, I didn't feel that. I did feel that Bart was certainly um, the, uh, the protagonist. That's not the word I want. Um, he was certainly the hurdle that um, Huff had to get over or get around. Yes. But um, I, I almost felt that was more out of necessity. You know, this is the guy who's, this is the one guy who's closing in on, who can close in on me. I didn't feel like he was actually trying to uh, get around him per se, well, as much as I think he was, as much as I think he was trying to take the company more so than, I think more so than Bart. Do you? Yeah, but then again, I see your point and it is ambiguous in the book. There's no specific dialogue that points this up but i think kane was always interested in how people 
betray each other and how people come up with secrets mm. and hide motivations. And I think the company wasn't talked about that much, but Barton Keys was. And you saw him talking about, oh, and complaining about, hey, you know, these fools that I have to work with, you know, this sort of e egotistical. And it just appeals to me that the idea that Huff was thinking, well, you you think you're so smart? I'll I'll pull the perfect crime on you so that oh, everything okay. will okay. be covered and you won't be able to do anything because and that's what actually happens. But he doesn't um, he doesn't realize that Huff relies on instinct as well, not just raw facts. Right. And that's what trips him up. Right. Right, right, right. Well, there's great moments of um, trying, you know, uh, when um, when Barton brings up the uh, the aspect that, uh, yeah, he took out this accidental life insurance. Right. <laughs> and it's like, but, you know, two weeks before he broke a leg and didn't make a claim. Yeah. What is that all about? You know, and, and right. it's such a great. Um, as as a as a reader. It was like, I didn't even think about that until he said it. Yes. And it was like, oh, what a mess up they had. Why didn't they think of that? that That's course, right. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't he have done that? You know, uh -huh. um, but I also liked the um, where they're, they where the uh, the head of the company is thinking it's it's pot. Well, it's interesting because you say uh, uh, Huff is, is thinking about he's, uh, you know, you know so much. Well, you don't know this. You know, I can do this. There's that moment between the head of the company, Norton, and Keyes, where Norton wants it to be suicide. And they do this brilliantly in the, in the movie, too. Uh, and Keyes, uh, uh, Barton, runs that whole list of, of I've got yes. all these books that talk about suicide. I've yeah. got suicide about people jumping off buildings, suicides with yes. guns, breakdown by caliber. That's I've, a great speech. Yeah. You know, nobody nobody jumps off a you know fall, jumps off a slow moving train to commit yeah. suicide that's not what they do well, let's talk about the film a little bit uh, since okay. we got into it um chandler was called in kane originally was asked by wilder to do the adaptation but um there were problems with the dialogue um wilder felt that while on the page the dialogue sounded good it didn't really work spoken by actors and he had read Big Sleep and was recommended to him. And um, so we brought Chandler in to do it. Now, Chandler is, was an interesting choice because Chandler wrote about Kane. He said some of the awful, most awfulest things. He said, uh, everything Kane touches smells like a billy goat. He's every, he's every kind of writer I detest a Proust in greasy overalls, a dirty little boy with a piece of chalk and a board fence and nobody looking. Oh, no. So oh, I found it God. ironic that this man who just detested Kane's uh, writing, which surprises me because it's so beautifully written, he certainly yes. would have appreciated the formality. I suspect that he may have just been prejudiced by the current... Uh, culture of the time, which saw Kane as being a sensationalist and a, and a overly hitting the sex part of everything. But anyway, he was called in and they Chandler essentially helped rework the dialogue into a more spoken form. They kept the dialogue, but it wasn't his exact dialogue. What right. did you think of the script? 
that they eventually came up, up with. I think the script is one of those um, one of those rare times where someone took their source material and improved upon it immensely. Um, I, I, I again, I, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading the book, but they took key elements and enhanced them. The relationship between Keys and um, and Huff and and uh, this, what was the name of the? I'm sorry, my brain just just fried. Phyllis Nerdlinger. Uh, no, when they changed um, Huff's name to Neff. 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 The the relationship between Keys and Neff in the film is the heart of that movie. I think there, you know. Um, when uh, the, the the when Edward G. Robinson when, when um, Frederick Murray says to Edward G. Robinson, you know, I love you too. It's such you buy it that these two men are friends, and then you don't get that in the book. You don't get that they're friends in the book. They're co-workers. They're colleagues. They've known each other for a long time. But in the movie, you really feel that connection between these two men and i think that that's um i think that's that that raises the movie a little bit above from the from the from the uh the book so richard i wanted to talk to you a little bit about before we close about um a book that was published by roy hoops who did the famous biography which is excellent on mm -hmm. james m cain it's about his years of journalism because he was essentially a journalist long before he became a novelist or a, a failed screenwriter. And it's called 60 Years of Journalism by James M. Cain. It uh, uh, contains journalism from his earliest days all the way to the end of his life when he wrote a series of articles for uh, Saturday Evening Post. Oh my gosh. And, yeah, he was... Uh, in fact, he 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 mentioned that on his tombstone, he wanted to have the fact that he was a journalist <laughs> included, as opposed to being a novelist or a, a screenwriter or a playwright. But anyway, this essay, which is absolutely funny and hilarious, and it's a side of him that you don't see in the novels or in any of his plays or screenwriting. And uh, he wrote this for the American Mercury, which was... Uh, edited and produced by his friend H.L. Mencken. Uh, they were close friends, in, and it was published in March 1933. And he says, I shall attempt in this piece an appraisal of the civilization of Southern California. <laughs> Which is hilarious. And he has lots of things that he really likes about Southern California. And he um, has some things that he doesn't like about Southern California. So I wanted to read a little piece about his frustrations with uh, seafood in restaurants in Southern California. Now, keep in mind, this is 1933. Right. And he goes through a whole bunch of, you know, lobsters, crab and everything. But uh, he has a little paragraph, which is hilarious. And he says, but the prize monster of these parts is called the abalone. Um, it's pulled out of the Pacific, which makes it different. The shell is large, some six or eight inches across, and fluted like a scallop shell. It's very pretty. The thing itself is a lump of muscle about the size of a small lemon, and so tough that if you tried to cut it, it would jump off the plate and hit the lady in the next table with the, on the eye. 
So they operated on it with a hammer to soften it up a bit. How many outfielders they have to post to field at home when it jumps off the block, I don't know. But when they get through with it, it's a sort of child's pancake. And this they dip in batter and fry. Well, you can have it. I got half of one down. And what an experience that was. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's that the tone terrible. of the whole thing, this sort of tongue-in-cheek, kind of serious, kind of not serious. Um, and it's and, and I think it shows Kane's real personality as a person. Um, you often infer who the person might be from their books. You know, if you look at all of the crime novels and the preoccupation with sex and and violence and and adultery in these books, you might think that he was a sort of sordid little fellow, very lonely and not very clean. He was far from that. He was a very ebullient, warm-hearted person. At the end of his life, he was living in Maryland and his wife died. And everybody in the neighborhood loved him because he knew all the children's names in the, his immediate area. And he knew their birthdays. And he'd take a, a, a quarter and he would put it in the corner of a uh, envelope, fold it up, and give it to them as a present on their birthday. Aww. Yeah. See, that's it's so interesting when you think about the uh, the troubled life of, say, Chandler. You know, and Hammett uh, with, too, with, and and Hammett with alcoholism and you know family problems and stuff like that. And yeah, to to, to hear this uh, this person who wrote such hardcore noir stories yeah to be you know well that's not me yep <laughs> well he's he had struggled struggled with drink for a while um and he had uh three different wives um oh, okay. four four different wives and oh, okay. so that was a problem there but he ended up with one that he finally loved and they were together for 15 plus years and he was very happy living in the world he was, although he was quite poor towards the end of his life and was living on um, uh, reprint sales. Um, paperback editions of his, the, the first paperback edition was by Avon in their Murder of Mystery Monthly, which has a wonderful cover, which I could wish I could show to you. Um, I'll write about the paperback publishing history I, of it in the show notes. I, it's, it's interesting. One of the things you would ask me at some point was... Um about paperback covers of Kane's books and um, that murder myth, murder monthly. It's the best. It's it the great? Best. Uh, oh, of all the ones that I looked at and I looked at a bunch of them. It was like, that one is perfect. It's perfect in every way. Yeah. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. Avon it, did most of the early publications and then uh, they were picked up later by, um, gosh, I can't remember. Anyway, we'll put it all down in the um, in the show notes so everybody can see it. But I wanted to close with this question to you about where does Cain sit in the pantheon of great mystery writers, especially Raymond Chandler? You know, when they they often talk about the trio, Chandler, Hammett, and Cain, but Cain seems to get short shrift. It seems to me. I think part of um, I think that's that's an accurate portrayal. Just if you take if you just take Double Indemnity, 
and um, look at at the uh, how it hits every everything we we want out of a noir novel. It hits and hits, you know, absolutely dead on. The ending, there's problems with the ending that I that I that we haven't gone into, but it fits so well into those um, into that triangle. Um, I think anybody was looking to um, write that kind of thing now or for the past 60, 60, 70 years, you couldn't do better than to pick pick up this book or one of Chandler's books yes. or one of Hammett's books and study what they did and how they did it. Yes. And you would have a solid basis for being able to write yeah. such a novel. Yeah, it's interesting. So influences, in a way, the films have overshadowed Kane's novels and his career. Um, but you know, my partner, Lisa, who you know, Lisa Morton, she initially got me interested in Kane because she said, when I was telling her, when we first got together, God, what, 20 years ago, I was telling her I really liked mysteries. And she says, oh, James, James M. Kane is one of my favorites. And I said, I've never read him. He says, oh, you've got to read Butterfly, she said. Uh, she didn't say Postman, or, although she had them in the library. She's Butterfly is fantastic. And she had a first edition of it, which has an introduction. Golly, I think it is Kane's own introduction in it, which is just great. And she was right. Butterfly is, is brilliant. And I, I thought about that. And I think writers tend to admire Kane because they learn from him. And I think he's taught in schools more than Chandler or Hammett is. But the influence on popular culture and mass culture is more pronounced with Chandler and Hammett than Kane. Mm -hmm. At least that's my feeling. I think you're, you're, you're probably right. And part of that might be because the movies had such an influence that you were drawn to those. Yeah. If you think if you think of Chandler, you think Humphrey Bogart. If you think uh, Hammett, you think of Humphrey Bogart. And I think certainly I was led to reading those books because I saw those movies. I don't know that you would have the same reaction as good as as wonderful as as the movie is to run out and read the book. And I and I will come back to what I said at the beginning of this. I think part of that has to do with the fact that that you look at those as series. Mm. You know, you have a series. You have you mm. have the Philip Marlowe character that you can follow. You have the Sam Spade character that. Uh, I, when I read the Maltese Falcon, I wanted more Sam Spade, and then I found out there were short stories, and I right, and I whoa, I've got to read those because I wanted more of him. Um, I think that. Um, you also have uh, the continuation of those series. You have, you know, Lou and Archer, which uh, was published uh, a few years ago. And you have, you know, a whole industry now, it seems, that are people writing new Philip Marlowe stories. Um, and you don't get that, con that continuation of that pop culture icon with Kane. And yeah. I think that's what, I think, um, I don't think you're so much as, that the, the authors have overshadowed Kane. I think it might be their characters have overshadowed Kane because Kane wrote standalones. Very interesting idea. I think you're probably right. So I think you're probably right. Well, it's a shame because um, it, listeners, uh, 
Kane, James M. Kane is a richly rewarding author. He's he writes short, very clearly and cleverly plotted books, although his endings are often questionable. He was a stylist. He wrote in first person, so it makes the book visceral and oftentimes rugged. He has an intimate, intimate. intimate. Yes, that's a good way to put it. He was fascinated with the way men and women interact with each other, especially when that crosses the border into crime and murder. He loved that transition between love and hate that occurs or the two when the two are together. And he plots the scheming of the sexes against and with each other mm-hmm. in ways mm-hmm. that Chandler and Hammett can't even come close to. Well, what's it's so interesting that you bring up the the love to hate. There's that great line in, uh, and forgive me if I get it wrong, um, when things have turned sour between uh, Puff and Phyllis, he says, I love her like a rabbit loves a rattlesnake. Yes. <laughs> yes i remember stopping after reading that sentence and putting the book down and going oh my god that is so good that is so good that is so good you're absolutely right well that's about it for us we're going to wrap the show up today thank you very much richard for talking with us ricky thank you so much for um asking me to do this and i and i have to majorly thank you for finally getting me to read Double indemnity. Yes. And um, your recommendations over. Well, now I have to explore more. You definitely should. Really want to read the biography. Really want to read that. And a very uh, good biography. It's lengthy, but it's so well told. And his narrative style and what he covers is so good that you'll be engrossed in his life, which was fascinating. It just, well, just what little I've read sounds amazing you know introductions to books and things his careers that he followed while writing you know yeah. and like he was an insurance guy for a long time so he knew yes the insurance business inside out and i you feel that when you read this book no but i i'm i'm uh, i'm in your debt oh that's great because i don't know when i would have read this you know in my life and I'm happy. Uh, very much looking forward to, to following up on it want to read the butterfly now and you definitely have to read The Butterfly. That is this extraordinary book. I, I think it's his best. And I'm really looking forward to reading some of the later novels that have been highly praised um, and finding out why. So, like one of the last things that was discovered in his um, papers was a, a, a thing called The Cocktail Waitress, which um, Hard Case Crime. And Hard Case published. Crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it started that individual publications started a renewed interest in Kane, which I'm really happy for. Um, and I'll talk about that in a separate blog post after I get a chance to read it. It's a nice, a nice copy. They do a great vintage cover on it. And I, I really want to see what that's like. Very good. Very good. Ricky, thank you so much for having me on. I very so enjoy, enjoy these conversations and enjoy your podcast so much. Here's what we're going to do next time. Ross McDonald. You're on. Ross McDonald. We have to complete the the quartet because I think if you talk about the four biggest writers, male writers at least, in the United States who did mysteries, Ross McDonald has to be in that conversation. He's my my favorite mystery writer, so let's talk about him next time. I would love that. Okay. All All right. right, Thank you, Richard. A pleasure. Have a good day. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Show notes for this episode can be found at thepaperbackshow.com. All the links of um, articles and uh, books and movies that we've mentioned will be found there. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.